is happening now. We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. This is Hamilton Today on 900 CHML. Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson this week. Many of you, some of you, I, you know, I probably shouldn't say many because maybe next year it will be many after what happened. But some of you probably watched the Academy Awards last night. And again, I qualify that because for years, the ratings for the Academy Awards have been on a precipitous slide. And then last year, they fell off the cliff. So this year, they have presumably nowhere to go but up. And when I say maybe people will be watching next year, well, because of what happened, who knows? But I want to bring in Bill Briou. He is a television critic. He's an author. Uh, you can find him at BrioTV.com. Bill, how are you today? Hello, Bill. Have we got, let's try, we're just going to wait for a second here. We've got a, you know, tech, technology is a wonderful thing until it isn't. Uh, but yes, yesterday, uh, and again, I assume we talked about it just coming into the show. Oh, there's Bill. Is Bill here? No, we still don't have Bill. We'll keep trying. So the Academy Awards are going on. It looked like a different setup. It was a different setup than they had before. Uh, much more, mm, how do we describe it? If you didn't see it, much more um, company dinner at, at a ballroom rather than a jammed stadium or jammed theater. They had Testing seats. one, two, three. Can anybody hear there me? There we go. Oh, now I can hear you, Bill. How are you? No, I still can't. Well, let's keep going here. So they have they had these they had these seats set up all over the place, and they were giving out the awards like like happens in Academy Award. Everyone was dressed up and everything else. Um, and then, of course, uh, partway through, right before they were giving out, I think it was the best documentary. Although who remembers at this point? Chris Rock made a comment about Jada Pinkett Smith, who is the wife of Will Smith, and that did not sit well with Will Smith who got angry about this and got up onto the stage. Now keep in mind the way things were set up and this has something to do with it. When I said before how it was set up a little differently, this, this allowed for Will Smith to have easier access to the stage. And then, well, we'll get to that. Bill, I think is with us now, Bill, how are you today? I'm well, Scott, sorry for the delay. You know, as I say, technology is great until it isn't, but it's great now. So all is well. Um, we're talking about the Academy Awards, and quite honestly, nobody cares who won any award in that crop last night, right? Except for the winners. It's all about what happened in the Fufara. Yeah, the big slaps. That was the uh, that was the news for sure. I mean, I have to be honest. I had dozed off and turned away from the Oscars. I was turned on the hockey game, and a buddy who was a TV critic in <laughs> Buffalo. Uh, he said, "Hey, do you think that uh, that punch was real?" And I'm like, "I'm I'm watching the game. I don't know. I haven't seen a fight." And he was talking about the Oscars, so I had to switch back. Still couldn't find it. Went online, saw the YouTube clip from Australia where they had a, an uncensored feed, I guess, and I couldn't believe it. Yeah, you know, there, there's a bunch of this that it, it was a little shocking because uh, for a couple of reasons. One is usually it's all about appearance, isn't it? With, with like you, you get dressed up and you don't want to, you just don't expect anything to happen that is not scripted or that is not, I don't know, on their best behavior almost. I, I and my, I mean, I'm with you. The first time I saw it, I thought, okay, this has got to be a shtick. This has got to be something to try and 
get people talking because heaven knows nobody's been talking about the Academy Awards for a number of years. So here, here's our thing to do. Turn apparently not. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, for, for years and years, uh, way back when Bob Hope used to host the Oscars, his joke was that the, in his house, the Oscars were known as Passover because he never got one. Uh, but <laughs> viewers, viewers are calling it Passover now because they don't watch it anymore. Yeah, it looked like it could have been a gag, but no, it was very real. And um, the the behavior was um, embarrassing. I felt badly. You know, you saw folks like Anthony Hopkins come on later, and then um, the director, uh, Kevin Costner, made a wonderful speech about directors. You, you could see them trying, struggling to veer the, the tone back to something that was civil and dignified, and it was an uphill fight. Well, it seems like this, now this stuff has never happened that I know at the Golden Globes, but it's, it, this felt, that moment felt a lot more Golden Globes than it did Academy Awards, which again is supposed to be the beacon of civility and class and culture and upper crust and all that kind of thing. Uh, and, and I, but I got thinking about that. I mean, the, the joke that set this off, if that had been Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes, would anybody have been bent out of shape about it? Or when you go to something like that, are you expecting to maybe be the brunt of a joke, so it's okay. You know, Ricky Gervais has worked really hard for five, whatever many times he did it, to get punched in the face at an award show. Like, he's, <laughs> he has said things that, you know, could easily have provoked that kind of response. And, you know, everyone's drinking at the Golden Globes. And so, the, you know, that's where you would have expected that to happen. Um, I think, and you were mentioning how they had sort of segregated the, the front-line winners at the front of the stage, they had changed the venue so they were sort of in booths and it was easy access up, and that's where Will Smith came from. But they shouldn't do that. You know, they just have people... They won't again. Yeah, no, I don't I think it was a terrible idea because it sort of creates a tier system, like these are the important stars, and the rest of you, uh, thanks for coming. You know, so I, I think that was a mistake anyway, but it did make it easier for him to just walk up there although it's still astonishing to think you know there's still a few million people watching that you would actually stand and walk towards somebody and punch them in the head in the middle of a show well and a lot of people have wondered you know did the producers handle this right a lot of people have said you know what uh, if this was anybody but probably the person they already knew had won the best actor that person would have been ushered out of the arena, out of the building right away. And and a lot of people saying he should have anyway. He should have been anyway. You can't go up and punch a comedian in the head or slap a comedian in the head because you don't like one of their jokes. Should he have been escorted out of the building after that or were they right to let him stay? No, absolutely. It made it all stupid what he won and then for him to uh, accept and then to put on this gaslighting speech about how this is, you know, he's played King Richard. He has new insight into fighting for your family. No, no, this is, he assaulted someone <laughs> at the beginning of a show in front of thousands, millions of spectators. Um, and certainly charges could have been pressed. Now, ha had that happened and he had been taken away and, and kicked out of the auditorium, somebody like Denzel Washington would have accepted for him and made a very gracious speech and set a tone that was, um, much more civilized. Uh, Will Smith doing it himself, that's just somebody's, I don't know, thinking they're above the law and it doesn't wash. 
Well, we got to run, but you know, I thought it was so interesting and I read this from someone today. So it's, uh, I wish this was an original thought. It's not, but I thought it was so bang on. The person said that if you, if, if you listen to Hollywood, the things that Hollywood say they hate, privilege, toxic masculinity, entitlement, playing the victim. He literally checked off every single box and then got a standing ovation right afterwards. And it was like the height of hypocrisy. If they really believed what they say they hate, they would have booed him off the stage rather than applauding it. It was, it was everything they say they stand against. Yeah, once upon a time they would have. And there was a sketch earlier in the show where they had one of the, the women who were hosting calling men up on the stage and she'd have to frisk them later and, and check them out and ha ha ha. If it had been women that were being called up and, and turned into ob- objectified like that, people would have gone nuts. So there is some, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on last night. It just was, didn't work. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Canada's men's national soccer team, qualified yesterday to go to Qatar or Qatar, however you wish to say that. We'll be fighting about that one till the fall or later uh, to play in the World Cup. First time since 1986. It was a big, big, big deal. And as it turns out, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence. The moment that a Hamilton guy, that a McMaster professor takes over as president of Canada soccer, this happens. I, I think that this entire thing rests on the laurels of Nick Bontis, who joins us now. This is all you're doing, isn't it, Nick? <laughs> uh, I cannot take credit for all of this, but it is, uh, there are some parallels. Hey, the women are Olympic gold medalists. Uh, the men are now uh, World Cup qualifiers, but it's not just me whatsoever. There's so many people to thank. I'm in a thankful mood, obviously, 24 mm. hours after the big game. So many presidents to come before me you know, general secretaries, coaches, players, you know, one of the really gratifying things at the game those that was after the you know, who dreamed for many, many years to be in this position. And uh, we shared that event with them. Well, uh, yeah. And you mentioned all the, you know, your timing, if nothing else, your timing was excellent because there have been a lot of people, as you say, in your position who have gone through some very dry times and uh, didn't get to enjoy the kind of day as the boss that, uh, that you did yesterday. Tell me about that. So this is the first time since 1986. And back in 1986, when Canada made it to the World Cup, there were a lot of people, Nick, who thought this is the moment that the ball starts rolling down the hill. We build momentum. Soccer becomes a big deal in Canada. We're going to be on a mo- on a roll here. And it never happened. In fact, it went the opposite direction. Why did it take so long to get this back on track? Well, I mean, I think there's there's several reasons. First of all, you know, we didn't have the professionalized soccer enterprise back in 86 that we have today. Uh, you know, think about, you know, Toronto FC and Montreal, you know, Vancouver Whitecaps on the MLS side, but then also on the CPL side, you know, we, we have our own Forge FC in Hamilton in addition to all the other CPL teams. You know, that's the type of infrastructure that we need to sustain the success moving forward. And I think we have that in place now, obviously, going to Qatar in 2022, but let's not forget, we also have an unbelievable gift in that years ago, we worked very, very hard to secure 2026. So it's not just 2022. We will be in the World Cup in 2026 as well, that we are hosting, of course. And it's my ambition, you know, as a strategy guy and the president to look really far ahead, you know, to leave this organization in a much better position than I ever found it in. Uh, and have consistent qualifications on the women's side, on the men's side, 
in addition to all of our other soccer teams, you know, we keep on, you know, supporting our youth teams as well as para soccer and beach soccer and futsal soccer as well. So I anticipate that we will have new ambitions now at Canada Soccer that we will always aim to qualify for a World Cup moving forward. You mentioned 2026, and that's absolutely true. As the host or the co-host, you get an automatic berth. But how important, and not just because it was fun yesterday and it's a great thing, but how important was it for Canada Soccer to legitimately qualify rather than to get the automatic berth? Well, I mean, I think you you answered the question. Of course, it's it's amazing to legitimately qualify because we knew it was going to be difficult. Think of where we were just over a year ago when, you know, we were forced to actually go through the repassage, so to speak, and to compete against all the lower tier ranked teams down to 41 countries in CONCACAF. But, you know, going through that arduous journey, you know, through the Caribbean and, and, and Central America, actually, I think supported John Herdman and the players because when we started the uh, the octagonal, as they call it, you know, we were already raring to go with good momentum. And, you know, let's remind the, 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 the listeners out there, it's not that we just qualified. I mean, we qualified with style, right? I mean, here we were <laughs> up until a few days ago when I was in Costa Rica. We were undefeated in this journey. Uh, you know, we've got one game left in Panama as we fly down to Panama. And, and, and surely, hopefully, we will finish top of the table in CONCACAF. So we're going to be going to that FIFA World Cup draw on April 1st, which, of course, happens to be April Fool's Day. But I'm sure the Qataris don't know about April Fool's Day. Uh, you know, and we'll, we'll figure out exactly who we're playing against. But I can assure you, nobody, no matter where you're ranked in the world, wants to play Canada in the World Cup. You mentioned Costa Rica. For those who don't know, Canada played Costa Rica on Thursday evening. They had a chance to qualify then, didn't win that game. You were down there. I won't say I'm sorry that you were down there and had to suffer through warmth for a, a day or so. We're all jealous. But but it was, ultimately, it was the perfect way to not win that game to be able to qualify here at home at BMO, right? I mean, it, it was a way better thing to do it here. Yeah, I mean, look, the world works in interesting ways, of course. There's a, there's a higher power out there. Uh, it was a wonderful experience here. I mean, I, I, I've been attending BMO Field as a fan, you know, a, a, as an administrator, as a volunteer, you know, since it was first constructed many, many moons ago. And even not only as a supporter of the national team, but as a supporter of Toronto FC. Uh, but, you know, it, it was so Canadian, I have to say, yesterday. You know, there, there was a twinkling of snow coming off the lake. It was freezing cold. The Jamaicans were losing their minds as to how cold it was. And, uh, you know, the, the celebration, no one, I mean, there were 29,000 people at BMO Field yesterday. No one left. The whistle blew and people stayed in their seats for at least another hour as we celebrated. You know, it was a cathartic moment for those of us that have been soccer fans for decades and decades. And as you started off the segment, we lived through some very, very bleak times. And, and you know, as Canadians, maybe we don't celebrate as well as we should. But let me tell you, I'm celebrating now. So 1986, when you went to the World, well, not you, when Canada went to the World Cup, uh, you made it there, Canada made it there, lost to France on a late goal that would have been a tie against one of the favorites. But anyway, from there, lost three games. So didn't score a goal, didn't win a game. What's the expectation now in Qatar? Is it incremental? Is it, okay, we got to get at least a draw, or we got to score a goal, or is it we got to get wins? What, What is the expectation for Canada? Well, for me, obviously, the expectation is that we absolutely win the World Cup. Come on now. Why would I say anything different? <laughs> of course. No, of course. And look, in, we all would all love for that to be reality. Yeah. But, we, all but seriously. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it has to be incremental. It has to be. So, you know, the, we're, we're going to have multiple goals, which is exactly what, you know, John Herdman's style is. 
you know, the first goal is let's score a goal. We didn't do that, as you said last time. That's the first goal. Then we, you know, surpass that goal. And the second goal is let's win a game. And then we surpass that goal. And then it's let's get out of our group. And, you know, we go from there. You know, John is very meticulous and methodical with incrementalized goals. And I honestly believe that this crop of players and, and the professionalization of the soccer enterprise in this country, as well as our organization at Canada Soccer, is prepared to absolutely turn some heads when we go to Qatar in November. It is, um, I mean, look, Canadians, uh, because of where people have come from into this country and lots of other things, people have all people are always excited about the World Cup. I have a feeling that um, other than maybe some Italian fans, uh, there's going to be an awful lot of very interested Canadians who maybe a lot of them, who Nick, who have never tuned into a World Cup before, but who will probably do that now, even if it's just out of curiosity to see what it's all about. But um, yeah. it will uh, it will be exciting for sure. It will well, be exciting, well. and we we look forward to it. Well, thank you, and 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 I do believe that that you know there is definitely a momentum growing. You know, the ratings for the game yesterday. I don't have the official results, but my, my assumption is that they were through the roof. Uh, people are jumping on the bandwagon. I got no problem in people jumping on the bandwagon. You know, everybody knows that soccer is the world's game. Everybody knows Canada's reputation in the world of hockey. And, and, and you know, this is no offense to hockey. I, you know, I grew up a Leafs fan growing up in Toronto. Um, you know, and, and people wear hockey jerseys all the time in support of, of, of their, their NHL club or their Canada's national team. But soccer is the world's game. And you know what's going to happen after today? People in Germany, fans in Brazil, and fans in England, they're going to put on an Alfonso Davies Canadian jersey. They're going to put on a Jonathan David soccer jersey. You're not going to see many people outside of Canada wearing a Canadian hockey jersey. But you're going to start seeing people outside of Canada wearing a Canadian soccer jersey. We will. I'm sure that is, I'm sure that is true. Uh, Dr. Nick Bonas, president of Canada Soccer. Th- congratulations and thanks for the time today. Thank you. All the best. Area rating is uh, the title is probably the least sexy thing you could possibly talk about in the city. But I got to tell you, it is uh, it is impactful when it comes to your taxes. And now there is talk that some city councillors want to get rid of area rating. Area rating was brought in during amalgamation and it essentially charged different wards, different amounts based on services they got. Over time, many of those things have been unified. But the one that still remains as a big differentiation from ward to ward is transit that one apparently is now on the table uh one person who as i understand it is not particularly enamored with the idea of getting rid of it is ward 12 councillor lloyd ferguson who joins me now lloyd thank you for the time today is lloyd there yeah, there. Yeah, There's Lloyd. How are you, Lloyd? Oh, yeah, Thanks I for just, doing this. You must have just hit the button because I just heard you. Come on. Um, there is talk to get rid of area rating. Again, not something that probably a lot of people in their day-to-day life talk about, but then when they get their tax bill, they probably do. Why is the move afoot to get rid of area rating? Well, to dump more cost of uh, running, particularly transit, as you said in your opening comments, on the suburbs. And they, they, they want to go to a system where everybody pays the same, whether you uh, have no service, like in rural areas, you have a little bit of service, like in suburban areas, or 10-minute service, like they have in the city. And so it's a, it's a real contentious issue that, as you said, it was put in place during amalgamation because uh, that was a painful time. And um, so as a way to not uh, expect a download um, Items like fire, transit, uh, street lighting, uh, and a few others that are less expensive onto suburbs. 
and it was. I don't know if you were you old enough to be remember back in two thousand. Uh, I sure was. And oh, I, I'm I'm not that young, Lloyd. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I wasn't sure whether you're familiar with the history. It was a war, and um, and and quite frankly, uh, it resulted in a lot of the suburbans walking out to lose quorum uh, to stop it from from trying to dump those services onto suburbs that uh, the city currently uh, enjoys, but with no change in service levels. And nothing's changed because that's still the case. And so we are uh, bringing in, we are eliminating area rating if we approve the budget on Wednesday for street lights and sidewalk snow removal and sidewalk repairs. And, uh, you know, that's a bit of a crawl in, in my side too because rural people don't enjoy sidewalks or don't enjoy uh, street lighting. They get nothing but they're expected to pay six dollars uh, a home more based on a three hundred thousand dollar value house and of course how how though Lloyd is that different from and this is the the argument that is always made, how is that different from people who don't have kids in school who pay a school tax or anything else? Well except school education is funded by the province, not by the municipalities. And so Sure, but you still pay for it. Not much. Most of us, when when the, uh, Mike Harris days downloaded um, Ontario Works, it used to be called Welfare, but to Ontario Works to the municipalities, he uploaded education, and so it actually is a uh, not a significant amount of money that we pay uh, towards education, uh, because education, whether it's secondary, elementary, university, or college. It's all funded by the province of Ontario. Oh, no, no, sorry. I, I understand. What I mean is the the average taxpayer, even if they don't have a kid in school, even though it comes provincially, you are paying taxes to go to education. So why would it be different, even though I don't maybe have bus service, why is it not, why do we not just say, well, fair is fair, everybody pays equally, even if you don't have a kid in school, even if you don't get bus service? Well, let me ask you this. How is it fair to have everybody pay the same when if you live in the city, lower city, you get a, a, a bus every 10 minutes? Ancaster, I can I can quote that because that's the area I represent. We have two main bus lines that come into Ancaster, and we have to pay the area rating costs when those buses do roll through this community. And, uh, and uh, I reluctantly agreed to do that uh, because of the Ancaster Industrial Park, and they employ thousands of people in there now. It's gone through tremendous growth. And, and so a lot of those people live in the old city, and they come in by bus. So it was the right thing to do, uh, although it impacted Ancaster. But... Why should we pay for a service that we're receiving a fraction that the uh, the old city is is getting uh, very good um, good service? And yet there's no no change to our service; it stays the same. There's just a switch of dollars, a switch from suburban to inner city, but no change in service. But what about the change in service? Some have said, "Well, look, if we do this, we can improve service to those rural or outlying areas that we couldn't do if we keep it the way it is." Do you expect that if this is done? Service to Ancaster, Dundas, Stony Creek, Flamborough, Waterdown is going to be better? Uh, no, I don't, because once again, we'll get outvoted. The, um, um, the numbers are there's eight uh, old city councillors and seven suburban councillors, so you can't win the vote. And, and uh, it's not projected that... It, it, well, quite frankly, too, Scott, and you live in Ancaster, we don't want it. People generally don't... I'd get maybe one call a year about transit service in Ancaster. What people in Ancaster want, and they're prepared to pay for it, is all the snow cleared by 7 a.m. so they can get their cars out to get to work. Because mm. most of them have to commute to the lower city or out even further further east to Oakville or Toronto for work. 
And so we don't want the service either. So why should we pay for it? And on top of that, they currently get, with this area rating deal that was cut back in around 2011, 2012, each board councilor gets $1.6 million to spend on infrastructure in their ward over and above what's approved in the capital budget. So if you want to eliminate area rating altogether, share that money around with the suburban municipalities. If you want to take some more revenue from the suburban municipalities and put it towards transit. And right this year alone, there's an 8% increase in the transit budget. It's been as high as 11 12% because of service enhancements. But it's been area rated, so it's pretty tough for a suburban councillor to argue it when we aren't receiving that service. But if they've gone and enhanced the service levels of transit so much in the old city, but now that they got it, they want the suburban municipalities to pay. And, and when one councillor said last week that he supports keeping the infrastructure area rating, which is the $1.6 million, but transferring the bus uh, area rating out so that suburban municipalities pay more. And that all is, I want uh, to we... do, quite frankly, Scott, because there's too, too, many, too many contentious items on uh, our agenda, is keep the peace. Mm. You know, it, it's like Russia taking we... on Ukraine. They old well, taking yeah. on the suburbs. We got to run, unfortunately. But it is look; it is contentious. There is no question; it's contentious. And whichever way this goes, there will be some angry people. Uh, well, Lloyd it, Ferguson that Ward... has been kicked down the road to next year. Lloyd Ferguson, Ward Twelve Councilor. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for Thanks, this. Bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's talk nine hundred CHML. In a shocking, unbelievable twist yesterday during the Around the Bay Road Race, the winner was not CHML retiree Ted Michaels. I know, it was shocking that he was not. However, a guy named Kevin Coffey from Kingston was the men's winner. And on the women's side, this is uh, this is a cool story because this almost never happens. A Hamilton woman won the Hamilton race. Yeah, it was uh, it was a cool thing. Victoria Coates was became the first Hamilton woman to win since Kate McNamara did it back-to-back in 2005 and 2006. Victoria Coates joins us now. Victoria, congratulations. Thanks so much. You didn't just win, by the way, for people who uh, who didn't follow it that closely. You were you finished three minutes ahead of the field. That is, uh, people, uh, that's not supposed to happen, is it? I mean, for you it is, but <laughs> that's I mean, a huge gap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it, w- it was a good day for me. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. How many times have you run the Around the Bay? Um, never. This was my very first time running around the bay. Really? Mm-hmm. I would yeah, have thought so I, that someone from around here would have done it a few times over the years. Yeah, you know, it's, it's never worked out for me. Um, I've just been had, you know, other races or one year I was planning to do it and I got injured. Um, it's also a really long race. You know, it's 30K. So it's taken me some time to be able to do the the necessary training to be able to complete 30K. So a few years ago, I did the 5K. But yeah, this is my my first time at at the 30K. When you mentioned the training, it is at an, uh, I don't know if it's at an odd time of the year. It seems a little bit odd because for someone who is an elite athlete who's trying to get their training up, it means a lot of running in the winter. I know you're probably running in the winter anyway, but is it an unusual time to try and be at your peak? It is. It's tricky. I think the winter is uh, a a time when a lot of runners get injured um, just because you're battling the elements. Um, And, you know, this winter was especially tough, I have to say. We got so much snow and cold. Um, but, uh, you know, I was able to, to come out on the other side of it. And I think we were all sort of well prepared for the conditions we faced yesterday. 
even though you haven't run it before as someone who's from here, is it something that has been on your, I, I hate the word bucket list, but we'll say yeah. that for the lack of anything else. Is it, is not only running it, but is winning this something that for a, an elite runner, is it something that you've always been looking at? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, when you're a runner, when you tell someone you're a runner, I think most, you know, it's quite common. Some will say, have you run the Boston marathon? But when you tell someone in Hamilton that you're a runner, they always, you know, want to know if you've run around the Bay. So it's certainly been on my bucket list. I think it's such a special race in Hamilton. And I'm, yeah, I'm so happy that I was able to, to take home the win. Have you run the Boston marathon? I should ask since you, since no, you not, not yet. So this was my, my longest ever race yesterday, 30 K. So the marathon is, is 42.2. So I, I have plans to work up to the marathon distance, but this was, yeah, this was my, my first crack at one of the longer races. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've what, what's your longest before now? Um, so I've done a half marathon, so it's 21 K. So yeah, this was my, so my longest when you so when you've not done this, you've trained at 30K before, right? You must have. Yes, I've, I've run I've run 30K or a bit longer in uh, in training, but not at like a race effort. So, Wow. Yeah. Okay, well, even more impressive then, especially as I say, when you blow the field away and you literally did blow the field away, that's even, that is even more impressive. And uh, it, the other thing is, uh, I don't need to say this to you. Uh, I am not an elite runner by any stretch. I'm barely a runner at all. But when I look outside yesterday, and I look at the thermometer and I look at the wind that looked like it was not a comfortable day to be doing this 30 K 20 K 10 K 5 K doesn't matter. It looked miserable. Oh, it was, it was a little miserable. Yeah. I was, uh, you know, the cold is okay. I think the wind was, was the, was the really difficult thing to deal with. Um, there was a huge stretch of the race where the wind was just, just right in your face. Um, luckily, I had some some <laughs> men who agreed to be my wind blockers for me. So my my husband and another friend were were out there, sort of letting me tuck in behind them to keep me a bit protected from the wind. When you're going at, when you're going at the speed you are, and I don't just mean obviously if you're going faster into the wind, the wind is blowing faster. But does your body warm up enough that it becomes not really noticeable, or is it really cold even when you're doing what you're doing? Um, yeah, you know, yesterday, I, I think part of it is just you have the adrenaline going and you don't really notice. I don't think I felt cold really at all yesterday. Um, it was more just sort of pushing against the wind. But you do sometimes run into, you know, we get the wind at your back, um, you might get a bit sweaty. And then when you go into the into the wind, then you sometimes get cold. But I didn't really experience that yesterday. I think I don't think I had time to really to focus on that. I was just sort of trying my hardest out there. No, you didn't have time because you ran 30K in an hour and 50 minutes. I mean, I, I don't know if I could drive it that fast, quite honestly, some <laughs> days with the traffic around here. Now, you you hadn't done this before, so uh, everyone around here knows, and you probably did too, about Heartbreak Hill. That, that was your first time in a 30K race. What was Heartbreak Hill like? Was it as bad as they say? Yeah, it was pretty bad. It was really bad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it comes it comes right near the end of the race too. You're You're so tired at that point. Um, but it also felt, you know, sort of, I'm, I'm really happy that it was in the course this year. Cause there was a time where we weren't really sure. And then, you know, it doesn't really feel like you've done the Bay if you haven't done heartbreak Hill. So I'm, I'm happy I got the chance to do it. Um, but I was certainly glad once I was at the top of that. Uh, you've, you've run for a long time. I, I've talked to you before when you were heading out to run, I, I believe you're doing a, a, a championship in Uganda. I mean, you've, I mentioned that because you've run now in these miserable cold conditions, but also in these blazing hot conditions as a runner, which one do you prefer? 
Um, I prefer the heat, but I, I am sort of known as being someone who's good at all conditions. I kind of, I kind of thrive when they're difficult conditions. So if it's cold and rainy or, you know, really hot and humid, those seem to be when I'm at my, my best. Uh, this is a weird question. I always think it's a weird question when I ask this, but do you, do you like the pain? And I, I that all, it always sounds funny to ask people that. And yet to do what you do, there has to be some capacity to either enjoy it or just really tolerate it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a hard question. I don't know that I, I like it. I The feeling you get afterwards, though, is just the best feeling in the world. So it's you all mean when you it. stop. Yeah. yeah, when you stop <laughs> and when you, you know, when you break the tape across the line, like all of that pain was was absolutely worth it. Yeah. Um, we only have a, a little bit of time here, but you're not a, you, you work for the city of Brantford, correct? Yeah, that's right. So you're not a full-time runner. How do you become as good as you are when you're also working at a job? Where do you find the time and the energy and everything else? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of a struggle, but I've been doing it for quite a few years now. So yeah, I work full-time as, as an urban planner for the city of Brantford. I'm, you know, I'm lucky in that I have a job that has regular hours, so I'm done my work day at, at 4.30 on most days, and I have time to get my training in after work. So um, I've also been really lucky, I think, you know, uh, that the pandemic has sort of brought on this uh, work from home opportunities that hadn't previously been available. So, um, you know, taking out that commute has been, has definitely been helpful for me as well. Well, it was, uh, it was remarkable yesterday, especially, and I honestly did not know uh, before we talked that this was your first time ever doing yeah. it. That <laughs> makes it even more amazing. Uh, Victoria Coates, who won the Around the Bay yesterday. Now you realize that this means you have to come back next year and you will be the one that everybody is trying to beat. I don't know if you like being the, the what do you call it, the, the jackrabbit or whatever that everyone's yeah. going to be chasing. I don't know if you like that or not, but that's going to be you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully I can defend my title at some point. You know what they should do? We got to run, but you know what they should do? In some like European hockey leagues, the leading scorer in the league has to wear a gold helmet while he's playing. You yeah. should have to wear like a gold hat so everyone knows exactly where you are and they can always find the leader. But anyway, it's an idea that I'll I'll suggest to Anna Lewis down the road and she'll laugh at me and tell me to go mind my own business. Um, Victoria <laughs> Coates, really appreciate this. Congratulations. Good job yesterday for sure. Oh, thanks so much. Let me bring in Alyssa Freeman. She is a PR and pop culture expert joining us today on Hamilton Today. Alyssa, thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So are you on Team Smith or Team Rock on this one? I'm on Team Rock. But, you know, let's be clear. Alopecia is a devastating disease. Um, people are very tight to their hair. And from what I've read in the black community, hair is very, very important in terms of um, identity. So the thing is, though, when you have Chris Rock perform, you're getting Chris Rock. And his, his brand of comedy is not unknown to people who know Chris Rock. And, you know, he obviously has an international reputation that he has worked for for more than 30 years, as has Will Smith. So, you know, it seemed that, you know, yes, we can question the joke, but this is not something that Chris Rock actually hasn't touched on before. So I would almost think that the Smiths would have uh, anticipated it. But really, Will Smith's behavior and then the follow-up in terms of his words was really abhorrent. I think that the um, Academy itself, you know, they sort of pussyfooted around it at the, at the very beginning. But now they, apparently they've come out with a stronger condemnation. 
And I am surprised, you know, a lot of people are calling for uh, that he should be charged with assault. But I don't think that Chris Rock, from all, everything that I've read, wants to go down that road. However, I think what we really need to look at is, so, Will Smith, you gave this rambling speech where you kind of defended your actions because that's what, you know, King Richard would have done in the movie of the person that you portrayed. And I thought that was 100% ridiculous. And I think that Will Smith is going to have to go on some sort of apology tour. And really, he could start at his wife's own YouTube show called The Red Table, where they seem to bear all every time they talk. It's a good idea. And, and you know, I mean, he's an A-list celebrity. He'll get away with whatever he wants to get away with. We, we, you know, you've got Alec, Alec Baldwin, who's now out shooting another movie. That, you know, uh, an accident. No one's saying he did it on purpose, but an accident that killed someone didn't seem to do much. So, you know, you get away with what you get away with. But here's what I don't get, Alyssa. And maybe I'm just really old school. I don't know. But whatever happened to the idea of sticks and stones? That you know what it's you do, because someone says something about you, even if it's mean, even if it's offensive, you don't have to react every single time. You can sometimes just say, "Yeah, they said something about me. So be it." I agree, and I don't think that every reaction uh, actually deserves a reaction. But you know what, Scott, we deli- we live now in a culture where people tend to want to react to everything, and a lot of it oh, on social media. Somebody says something and then snap, you need to react. But honestly, if we all took a pause and actually thought before we did or we spoke, things would be a lot better. And Will Smith did not do that. I mean, you know, the other thing to, uh, about this, too, is that the, both Smiths, uh, Will and his wife, Jada, they live their lives very, very publicly. Like there are some details that I think the public is privy to about their marriage, about their open marriage, about their problems. Um, that is very unusual among Hollywood couples. And I think that if, you know, he obviously has to do some sort of damage control. I'm surprised that something hasn't come out uh, quick, like from their camp, from their publicist at least, at this point. But I would think that you'd want to be in a place where you can actually feel safe about giving an apology and hopefully control the narrative. I mean, in my own head, I think that Oprah's people are working triple time right now, phoning Chris Rock's people and phoning Will's people. And I'm saying it right here, right now with you, that there is going to be a big apology uh, show. And if Oprah isn't on this already, I would be shocked. Yeah, and I go back to my point. I just I, I I know that things are different now, and you're right. And I don't mean to be the old guy who just talks about the old days, but th- no, there no, was no. a time. Sometimes the old adages are very, very real, and they're there to provide wisdom. Yeah, I, like there are things that Chris Rock could have said that, and I know this was bordering on the mean, and I I get that it would be a sensitive thing, but there are things he could have said that would have been really, you know, Ricky Gervais in the Golden Globes crosses that line sometimes and yet no one has come up and slapped Ricky Gervais and I just I just I think that as you say if you're going to live your life in the public domain where you are making millions and millions of dollars because people are interested in you and you feed that I don't know that you can snap at something that is you know on the level of one to ten of of upsetting maybe a six maybe a seven I don't know but surely you've got to be able to say hey that's that comes with the territory 
I totally agree. And then you also have to think of the ripple effect of, like, does anybody really remember what happened afterwards? You know, I mean, Twitter blew up, Instagram blew up. Suddenly you were getting live feeds, uncensored feeds from Japan and Australia. That's how fast the world works right now. And then, you know, this unbelievable movie, Coda, wins Best Picture. And, you know, in its own right, you know, uh, featuring um, uh, a cast of uh, actors who are deaf. And it kind of got lost in the shuffle. And I feel a little bit bad about that. And I would presume that Will Smith feels bad about that, too. So I think that, you know, when we react in the heat of the moment, especially when you are an international star on an international show, you really need to take that second thought and think, OK, I, I need to dial this down because what happens next could get me in a lot of trouble. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I wasn't sure where things were going to go when travel opened up again. There were two possibilities. You could either have super deals to lure people back into traveling, or you could have big costs because of pent-up demand and everybody was now wanting to go and demand surged and supply couldn't keep up. Well, we kind of have our answer now. It seems that prices are going up to travel. And whether that's because entirely because of supply and demand or whether it's also because of inflation, let's find out. Let's bring in Richard Vanderloop. He's the president at tripcentral.ca. He joins us now. Richard, thanks for the time today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So which were you wondering the same thing that I was, whether this was going to be deal time or whether this was going to be pent up demand time and prices going up, or did you know this was going to be what we're seeing now? Well... <laughs> The pandemic and knowing something, I would say I've been fooled a few times, but the, the thought always was that there would be this pent up demand and it would, it would create <clears throat> a spike. And we also knew that during the pandemic, even in the darkest times of it, that there's only so low a price can go. There's a certain cost with flying a plane and staying in a hotel and providing a service. So I always knew that there would be this increase, but what's really nice is that we actually have a function on our website where people can watch prices and you can pick a package and you can watch the price. And we have this data of people that have chosen packages and we're monitoring the prices daily. And so we have this actual database of price changes from a sample of all of our customers watching prices. And what I was surprised to find out was just how dramatic uh, the increases were and the number of increases versus the decreases. It was, it was a real surprise to me. How dramatic is dramatic, Richard? Well, I, we, I'm able to look at this like since the beginning of, Jan- let's say, January and see the trend, right? So we could see the price increases outnumbering the decreases starting towards the end of January when people were starting to feel a little bit better about things and they knew the province was going to relax restrictions. And then, you know, the travel advisories lifted on February 15th. And then the the announcement for testing comes, you know, later on where it's going to go away. And now, you know, I see it move from sort of even ups and downs are about even to now it's 14 to one on average. And for the last seven days in March, it's like, you know, in the twenties to one. So for every one decrease, we're seeing 14 to 20, based on the day, increases. And does that, you know, does that mean that, Richard, does that mean that for a while there, if you had been willing to risk it and willing to, 
get your tests and all the rest. What were there great prices there for a while? And now that everything's opening up, the, all this increase that you're talking about has kicked in. Did, like, in other words, if someone wanted a cheap trip, have they missed that window because it once was there? Well, definitely prices have been rising, right? So, and, and I'm able to see, so the average decrease is in the hundred to $150 range. And the average increase right now is in the $400 range. So we have some wow. stuff that's just gone through the roof. Now, some of those numbers, too, get really crazy when the last seats in economy sell out. And there's only a few business seats near Canada. But for the most part, you know, really prices have been rising. And that's, and that's the real story here. I think um, there was definitely a time that if you had a booked earlier, uh, you know, you're going to see that the price you got was, was quite a bit different than what's out there today. How much do you believe this is due to that surge of demand and how much is it due to inflation and fuel prices? I mean, certainly if you're flying a plane, uh, it costs money to fill that plane up and it's going to cost more. Or if you're going on a cruise, they got to fill that thing up and prices for that are up. Which one is driving it? My, my gut feeling is it's demand. I think that what happened was, and, and it's a combination too, that the, the airlines had mothballed some aircraft I mean, the supply that's even available for them. For example, Air Canada grounded all their 767s. They're gone. They were Air Canada Rouge. That's a lot of seats going to the Caribbean on a 767. That's a wide-body plane with two aisles, right? So now the, the number of aircraft and the size are, are different. Um, Transat got rid of their A310s. And, and sometimes they parked a few in the desert, and you know they pulled them back into service. But... So there is there is a supply issue, but I think it's just the instant demand when it when it correlates so nicely with, you know, the the travel advisory and these announcements. I, I think it's mostly demand driven. I think we'll see, you know, flight pricing affected by fuel. I mean, it's certainly a factor, but um, I think it's it's a matter of uh, the pricing that the airlines can get right now and. For hotels that are in the Caribbean, you can't build new ones. And, mm. <laughs> you know, they might have mothballed some rooms and had some staff off, but there's there's nothing you can do to sort of have, you know, an accordion of uh, hotel rooms that open up with demand, right? So price is going to be now, affected. Now that people can go, Richard, where are they wanting to go? Where are the hot spots right now that everyone was booking for? Well, clearly just the timing of all this with the balance of the winter, you know, going south, was where the big spike was. I think Europe's been a, you know, it, it's picking up a bit, but it, it, it was, it was really just get me out of here. <laughs> and we're still seeing that now for the month of April and even into May, um, there's still really strong demand for sun vacations. That is Richard Vanderloo, president of tripcentral.ca. Richard, always appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Thanks for having me. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson this week. And just a few moments ago, uh, my next guest announced that he will be running for the mayoralty of the city of Hamilton. Would like to bring in former mayor, former MP, Bob Bertina. Bob, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Scott. 
Uh, well, so tell this is uh, this is something that you have been pondering for a while now. Uh, yeah. You've just sent out a, a press release announcing that you will be running. Why? Well, the world has changed a lot since we talked a while ago, and you know, you, you can look at uh, February twenty fourth, the invasion of uh, Ukraine, and the instability throughout the world that that, that has caused. It's having an effect. Here in Hamilton, of course, with uh, with the price of the gas pumps, and so there are a whole lot of uh, issues of affordability that are confronting Hamiltonians. And so, I, I after giving it a lot of thought and observing uh, what's going on in the city and in the world generally, I thought that it would be best if I let the Hamiltonians know that. I, I do want to uh, run again for the mayor of the city of Hamilton. As mayor, what what could you do in a, any significant way to help with the affordability problem, though? That, that seems like it's something that may fall on higher levels of government. Well, it certainly does. But uh, we managed it in my time when I was the mayor. The four years that uh, I was the mayor, the average increase uh, on the budget was 1.3%. And um, in my own office budget, which is r- roughly a million dollars a year for the mayor of Hamilton, over the four years, I returned $1.3 million. Uh, we obtained uh, the West Harbor GO station for the city with uh, an agreement with uh, Premier McGinty at the time. That was no residential tax increase. The football stadium, no residential tax increase. People are still surprised to hear that, but... Um, but that is a fact. So really, it's coming from uh, the immigrant parents who lived within their means, did the most of, made the most of what they had and did as much as they could for themselves. If you apply the basic principles of, of running a household to a city, you can uh, make sure that uh, the money that you are spending is well spent, value for, for tax money. So it, it's probably impossible to keep it at a zero increase, but we want to make sure that any money that's going to be spent is is spent properly for the benefit of most Hamiltonians. I don't know that it ties in, but it probably does. Um, one of the issues, I mean, the issue, the reason you're probably not MP right now still was the LRT. You were against the LRT. If you became mayor of Hamilton, what becomes of the LRT discussion right now? Well, the LRT discussion is is in the hands of city council. And as the mayor, under our system, I have one vote. Council will continue to uh, deal with the issues of the LRT as they come along. The one thing that I would say, though, Scott, is in view of the current situation in Canada with inflation, with interest rates, with the cost of fuel for people who are commuting or having to drive around the city to get to work, uh, that we need to look at a plan B just in case um, circumstances force the government to make other decisions. Uh, because I'm, I'm pretty sure I have asked, they're, they're rebuilding a house next door to me, and I've asked the guys how much costs have gone up over the last couple of years in construction, and they say 20 to 30%. So we, we, make, we need to make sure, of course, that we have an affordable project. But the, the main thing we need to do is ensure that, you know, when you're looking at these gas prices, There are more people who will now have to or want to choose transit if it's available. And do we have 
uh, the transit system that is covering all of the needs of the city. So there's a lot of issues with that, and we'll have lots of time because, you know, May, June, July, August, September, that's the campaign, and that's when we can drill down on the issues. But that's a general response to your inquiry. Uh, you mentioned that as mayor, you have one vote and you would have to work with council and it's the responsibility of council, whether it's LRT or some of these other issues. When you were mayor before, there were times when it was tense between you and councillors. It wasn't always smooth sailing. How would you, how would you feel now that you would be better served or better able perhaps to navigate some of those waters that were, were tense once upon a time? Well, the fact is that uh, the Manning Institute uh, issued a, a pretty remarkable report on the mayoralty of Hamilton. And it actually showed that I was in line with council on more occasions. And you can look it up. It's a public document. Uh, something like 85% of the time, we were all in agreement. The issues that you're bringing up were kind of personal. It was a, a time on council of personal attacks and uh, when we stuck to the business of the city, things worked very well. Personalities, and, you know, we had some very large personalities, um, some of whom will not be there anymore, um, was part of being the mayor at that time. But I think that if you, if you look at the results for Hamilton, when you look at uh, a West Harbor Ghost Station, at the stadium, at uh, the presence of McMaster downtown, which was huge, and that, of course, is the David Braley Center, and the other uh, Mac facility, which is located in Jackson Square. And then you look at Randall Reef, we finally got uh, that concluded, uh, thanks to a good relationship with the late David Braley, and Peter Kent was the environment minister at the time. So one after another, uh, area rating, we had unanimous consent for the area rating process that was instigated under at my time and and I allowed the two sides the, the eight lower city councils and the seven other city councilors to come to an agreement because I had the Trump in that case so you know we always hate to use that word these days but the way it would work is if I went along with the uh, eight older city councilors that's nine votes against seven that means it loses on a tie if it wins if i go with the outside councilors it's eight eight and then the the motion on area rating would lose on a tie so they came up with a solution that we were all able to agree to it was unanimous and now once again we've got maybe rearing its ugly head again but there's a way of, of getting around that. And when the time comes, we can deal with it. There are those, uh, they're on social media, they're in the public, they talk about it. There are those who say, you know what, um, it's time for new ideas, not for an old mayor, not old, well, someone who's been there before is what I mean. It's, not for, it's time for some new thoughts, new blood, new ideas on council, not recycled ideas or bringing people back. What do you say to that? Well, it's, uh, you know, a fair comment, but remember, there are going to be many new counselors. And so those new counselors will bring forward their new ideas and the present counselors, everyone has good ideas. Once again, I'm one of 16. But what a newer council needs and what a council in this time of instability needs is a veteran hand at the tiller. And I've 
actually enhanced my experience uh, in terms of being a mayor because of my federal responsibilities. And in the federal time, I've helped to bring many benefits to the city, including hundreds of millions of dollars to solidify and stabilize our steel industry with great uh, grants to both to FASCO and uh, to Stelco, which has been immensely helpful to the steel workers and their pensions and so on. So, so yes, new ideas, um, but that could tend to be a, a bit ageist because I was also the chair of the Indigenous, Com- Indigenous Committee when I was uh, a federal member of parliament. I met numerous representatives of the First Nations from all over Canada, from the far north, the Innu, the Métis, the First Nations people, Aboriginal people, and so on. And, you know, one of the things that they almost invariably referred to was respect for elders. And so there's something about having lived experience that will amplify and benefit uh, youthful approaches and, and new ideas. So we can all work together and come to a happy result if we work with the sole intention of creating benefits for the city of Hamilton. Uh, Bob, I'm already over time and they're going to kill me back at the station for going a little longer. But one more question. We only literally have 30 seconds. I trust that you running means you're not satisfied with the job that Fred Eisenberger has done. Well, I wouldn't say anything personal. I want any campaign that's going to take place to be a positive and, and not reflect on personalities. I would say there's problems in the administration that need to be resolved that haven't been. That, that's what I would say. That is Bob Bertina uh, running for mayor of the city of Hamilton again after being MP for four years, uh, no longer than that, uh, yeah. May, for, for six. MP six years. Thank you. I knew it was longer than that. Uh, Bob, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. Uh, We'll be talking about this more down the road for sure over the next number of days and months as well. Uh, I am late. Let's go to the news. Back after this. Stay with us. I want to bring in Manny Figueredo, who's the president and CEO of the YMCA of Hamilton, Burlington, Brantford, who joins us. Manny, thank you for the time today. Uh, You're welcome, Scott. Glad to be here. I, I, it feels funny to talk to you about this and not about something to do with school, but hey, let's, let's, uh, this is the whole new world, right? So thanks for joining us today. Um, when you heard about this, when you knew that this was coming, what, what do you expect the response is going to be? I mean, do, do you think this is going to be overwhelmingly positive for parents or do you think there are still going to be some questions? Yeah, I, I think overwhelming. This is, this is great news. Uh, you know, the, Operational details are yet to come, and, and you know that gets fleshed out more and more each day. But when I think about this, you said to be speaking about um, childcare, not education. Well, of course, there's a direct link to this. For decades, I mean, local people like you know Judith Bishop, who were advocating uh, for universal, affordable childcare for years. So I think about what school systems went through over a decade ago for full day kindergarten. So. Great announcements that require a really detailed and long-term strategy when it comes to implementation. So more information to come, but I think this is personally, I think it's a you know historical announcement. We think about you know systems you know um, that break op- oppression and, and exclude people. This is really going to allow families who couldn't have access before to have access. But you know, there's some operational challenges and opportunities in front of providers like like the YMCA and like I heard Denise Christopherson today around the YWCA, she highlighted one of those operational challenges that we're all going to have to 
addressed together. Well, one of those challenges, and I want to ask you about this, because again, you're, you're with the YMCA, so this is something that's going to come to you directly. Um, the announcement today was that there will soon be, in addition, 86,000 new high-quality child care spaces for children five and under. That's an astonishing number, which requires tens of thousands, maybe at least 10,000, maybe more than that, of new workers. Where do Where do those new workers come from who will come in and be those great daycare workers that we want for our kids. And, it, and that's one of the challenges Denise provided uh, today and I heard the conversation. So I go back to my previous experience in the school board when full day kindergarten was implemented across the province and in, in the classroom was two educators, a classroom teacher and an early childhood educator. And that was a challenge for school districts at the time, but we had to think long-term and work with our, local colleges around what is that where is that pipeline of employment and opportunity so one thing denise identified yes you can throw money at it higher wages that's one approach but you still need to find uh the people who have the desire and commitment to work uh in this sector so it's going to require us to really work with our local colleges um to think about programs will the programs provide local colleges uh, are there enough spaces that will deal with the demand, supply and demand? And what would, you know, attract a person um, uh, to this calling? Uh, I see the great ECEs. I've visited the programs um, in our Y in Burlington, Brantford, and Hamilton. And people, you know, work incredibly, especially during the pandemic. People have to step up as an essential service. But a salary is one piece of it. You know, organizations have to look at other work conditions and benefits, but we have to work with our colleges uh, who are the, the pipeline and our high schools to start thinking about, you know, is this around specialist high schools, majors in, in high schools? We've got to start thinking down the road to create this pathway uh, to these opportunities. There's another, and look, I, I understand completely uh, that these are really early days and there are a lot of things that still have to be sorted out. So uh, we absolutely understand that. One other thing, though, that really came to mind today was now that this is in place, I would assume there's going to be an awful lot of people looking for spaces and places like yours, you can't take everyone. So do you know yet how it's going to work? Is there going to be a, a priority for single parents or is it a first come, first serve? Or Because I, I would assume not everyone's even going to be able to find something that is really, really close to their home. How, how might that look or how might that work? Yeah, just I mean, great question, Scott. Just to give you context. So for the YMCA, like in two, 2021, we had about 1,400 preschoolers and about 3,700 school-age children before and after school programs. So what we've, in about half our locations are in schools. So um, that kind of detail we don't have, but the demand is going to probably outweigh the spaces. So one of the things I've read today is that Ontario by, you know, by December is going to have to license around 5,000 more, uh, you know, maybe family home childcare yes, and yes. other locations. But what, where I have seen success, and I just visited a, a location in Brantford at, at Central School when a new childcare addition was added to a school. To me, I've seen that success when it's seamless, when, when a school is in a community, a childcare that uh, uh, doesn't exist, an addition is put on. So the good thing about this existing in the Ministry of Education portfolio, 
when school districts put in requests for capital priority submissions for expansions and new construction, they're doing it in areas where there's growth. They're doing it in areas and saying, where can we attach to an existing school? So this is a long-term commitment, but in the short term, I hope that one area that is explored is all school locations as a starting point because it makes that transition more seamless for, for, for the children. It is. Do you believe, we got to run here, but do you believe, because there are people who love the idea of having a babysitter or a nanny or someone looking after their kids in home. Do you believe there's benefit to children to being in the daycare, the broader communal daycare setting, or is it six of one, half dozen of another? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a great question. Do I believe, you know, as, as an educator, I, I saw the benefits firsthand of children socializing in, in a play-based environment. Um, but we also saw, you know, parents who made some personal choices when full-day kindergarten came in and decided that they wanted to be um, at home. But I think what this addresses is parents who don't have a choice. Currently, parents who are making a choice, especially single parents, single mothers, who have to decide whether they maintain their job, continue to be in the workforce, or whether they stay home because, because economically it just doesn't make sense to pay for the expensive childcare. So I, overall, in general, I would say yes, from a, from a child development and socialization perspective, there's benefits. But of course, there's always exceptions where a situation or an opportunity might be better for a child. But I've seen the long-term benefits of, of, of being in a child care setting with great early childhood educators and uh, great, great quality programming. We were just reading a new poll, new last week. Seven in 10 American parents are worried that their children are turning into internet zombies. That's um, it's probably a, a hyperbolic way to describe it, but you get the point. Kids today are sitting in front of screens more than ever. And once upon a time, you could say, well, that's the fault of the parents. Get them up and put them outside, make them play outside, make them play in the backyard, do something else. But now with remote learning and everything else, this is now part of this is what kids do, what they have to do. It's no longer completely a choice. I want to bring in Tony Volk, who's a professor in the Department of Child and Youth Studies at Brock University. He joins us now. Thank you for the time today. My pleasure. So as I say, the difficulty I think a lot of parents are going to have right now is you and maybe I or me and maybe you grew up at a time when my mom or my dad would say, get off the TV and go out and do something. And now your school is, hey, get in front of the screen and pay attention. It's, it's, it's really hard to get away from a screen. Yeah, I think particularly the last couple of years has really cemented this trend um, that it was very difficult to say to your kids, go outside and play when parks were closed, when their friends weren't outside and everything, including their education, was seemingly online. And it still is, even though they may be back in class, there's a lot of classrooms that do use screens, do use tablets. Uh, is this a time when, even though that's modern and that's the technology that's available to people and we want our kids to be up to date, is, is this a time when schools should be considering step away from those devices and teachers come up with something else that doesn't require that in the curriculum? Yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword in that, we want our kids to be familiar with technology and certainly many of us are now having zoom meetings and getting used to more technology. But yep. at the same time, you're right that there's a real need for children to have face-to-face -face offline interactions. Um, and we can't give up on those at the expense of online interactions. And the reason I asked the question is because 
when you're at school, you're presumably part of what you're trying to do is learn something you don't already know. I, I would defy you or anyone else to find me a kid who's, I don't know, 15, 16, whatever, under that age who can't properly operate a device. I, I, I don't know that they need to do it in class to learn it. I think they probably already know it, don't they? It depends what you mean. If you're talking about PowerPoint or um, Zoom meetings, et cetera, sure, they'll learn it faster. Um, but I think a, a bigger issue is with all the information that's available on the Internet, um, as far as education goes, at least, they absolutely need to learn critical skills to be able to filter through all the information that's on the Internet, which is difficult for some adults to do. Do you believe that lots of time looking at a screen in the way that information is presented affects people's, not just children's, affects people's attention span? I think the evidence shows that it does. Um, it, it is dose dependent, um, but certainly spending large amounts of time on devices, especially things like Facebook uh, or TikTok or um, FaceTime that are designed to be addictive in a sense, definitely change the way that we think and behave. Because there's a second argument that goes with what I was just talking about in classes, and it's been going on for a while now, and that is, should schools allow teachers to tell kids you can't have your phone in class? You come into the classroom and there's a bucket or there's a cubby hole or something where you put your phone and you don't have it with you and we're going to do what we need to do without your phone nearby because it's such a distraction. Is that a realistic thing in 2022 or is that just wishful thinking? Well, certainly I think in the university level where I'm at, it's closer to wishful thinking. Um, in younger children, I think it's absolutely something that you can consider. And then when you're talking about the upper levels of high school, there really needs to be a dialogue and a balance about what's appropriate. So keeping a phone for a family emergency is one thing, but keeping the phone and quietly texting the people beside you is passing notes the new yeah. fashioned way. And that's just yep. distracting students. The fascinating thing I think about this whole discussion and about parents being concerned about screens and everything is, um, look, I, I've had kids that are grown now, but we all know anyone who's had young kids, they get bored with everything. There is nothing you could put in front of a kid that at some point they won't get bored with except a screen. For some reason, and maybe it's because what is on the screen is always changing, but this is the one thing that unfortunately, I guess, they never get bored with. So they're already wanting to spend all the time in front of it. Now you're telling them we want you to do more. It, it does seem like it's inevitable or it's, it's, it's logical that we're going to have a problem with this at some point. I absolutely agree, um, especially when these games are being designed to be appealing. There's lots of games being designed. Most of them are free. So there's an, it's like being able to go to the toy store over again, buying new games. Uh, you know, we have a reason for saying, like a kid in a candy store, that's what we're giving children. It's hardly a surprise that they find it really appealing. And we always hear when you're talking about that, that playing these games or getting a ding from someone liking whatever, it's a dopamine hit. How do we, if we assume, and I think it's a fair assumption, although you can correct me if it's a wrong assumption, but I think most of our kids have been conditioned now to have that dopamine hit and have that instant feedback. It's built into them now. How do you break that? How do you break that habit if it's already ingrained? Well, uh, I'll start off by saying I don't want to overestimate the, the size of this dopamine hit um, when there was a survey on how many teens 
felt they were addicted to Facebook, for example, I think it was around a quarter. Um, so 75% are not, which is the good news. But it certainly is an issue. And the only way to break it is to treat it for what it is. Um, this is potentially addictive uh, materials. And just like we don't allow children exposure to other addictive materials like cigarettes or alcohol until they're older, we might want to really seriously think about how we're exposing children and to what um, at these young ages. Tony Volk, a professor in the Department of Child and Youth Studies at Brock University. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. A few minutes ago, we had Bob Bertina on announcing that he would be seeking the office of mayor of the city of Hamilton in the upcoming election. Someone who has announced that she will not be seeking re-election after three terms in the city is Ward 15 Councillor Judy Partridge, who joins us now. Judy, thank you for the time today. Oh, hi, Scott. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to come on your show. Well, why? I mean, I know you've been there for three terms, so you've done a a good tour of duty, but why not run again? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I said in my first term when I ran that I believe in term limits and term limits being three terms. And so my third term is up. Uh, Secondly, there were a number of things that I wanted to accomplish and and help uh, the residents of Waterdown, Flamborough and Ward 15. With all the development that's uh, you know was was starting, um, and with my experience as a you know executive, um, senior executive, I, I wanted I knew that they needed that the community needed someone who could help manage that growth and stick up for any of unfairness, which you know does happen when when you have such massive development as we do. And thirdly, and lastly, um, I'm, I'm getting. <laughs> I'm getting pulled back to the corporate world. That's where I came from. And, uh, you know, there's some really nice opportunities. I'm not looking for full-time work, but there's some really nice opportunities to be on, you know, some national and international committees and boards. And, And that, quite honestly, Scott, that's really where my heart is right now is on more, uh, national and, uh, international issues. So, I mean, you ran as a liberal for Flamborough Glenbrook in the last election. That's not on the that's not on the slate for you to go this time again in the provincial election. No, definitely not. No, no. I, my my heart is not at the provincial level. My my heart uh, and you know my experience. I've I've been for the last two terms. I've been representing council on uh, FCM, which is the Federation Canadian Municipalities representing municipalities right across Canada. And uh, one of the things that that has really been interesting is the need for housing uh, is is it's an issue across all municipalities right across this country. Different levels of need, yes, but a lot of the issues we have in in Hamilton do um, you know apply to different municipalities. I'm also on the Ontario uh, uh, caucus for the Federation. So the work there has been, uh, it's been really rewarding and it's opened my eyes. I, I've also started working on um, on uh, a, a housing uh, program, if you will, that was brought to me by uh, the federal government, by some uh, MPs out there. And it's something that uh, I really see as quite viable. So you know, I, I just, my heart is being pulled on a more national level. And that's where I, I truly believe with all my 
experience and expertise that, uh, you know, that I can, I can help facilitate different programs. Uh, when, I, when I brought you in, I, I jokingly referred to it as three tours of duty. Um, does it feel <laughs> like that, though, at times? I mean, there has been a lot of criticism of this council. Is there a point at which you also say, I just, I'm tired of the criticism and I want to do something new? You need to keep focused as a counsellor. You really need to keep focused on the issues and the challenges citywide that are in front of council. You can't get pulled away and pulled into, you know, what I call kind of the echo chamber of of the criticisms that are out there. They're going to criticize, it doesn't matter who's in council, uh, none of them would have the guts to put their name on the ballot and run, mind you. Uh, and I'll get slammed for that. Yeah, I know. But um, yeah, no, it's a hard, it's a hard job. It's a very difficult job. You need to have, in my estimation, I believe you need to have um, a lot of experience on broad scale. Um, but you know, really, you need to have the heart to be committed to your city and to be committed to um, helping wherever you can. That's the focus you need to have. So there, there are groups that are pressing for, and people, not just groups, pe- pressing for change on council. This is, you have not been, you've not decided just not to deal with that anymore and to leave. This is of your own volition, not that you've been chased out or that you feel pressured out. Oh gosh, no, no, not at, not at all. You know, with my community, with Waterdown Flamborough residents, we have worked hard over the 12 years and accomplished a great deal. So when I look at, you know, um, and, and before I was elected in 2010, I was an advocate. Some call me an activist, but I believe I was an advocate for my community. So I was very, very well aware of the issues. You know, I'd been attending community meetings on all these developments that were coming for years before I was elected. And, and so when you, when you have that knowledge base, Plus, I had also worked with many members of council, um, you know, previous members as well as as some current ones. So when I stepped into that arena, um, I already felt very, very comfortable. No one is pressuring me to leave. I'm, you know, nobody pressures me to do anything. Let's put it that way. That almost sounds like a line from Dirty Dancing, but we won't say what that line was because, uh, but everyone knows what it is. Uh, Judy Partridge, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Well, and tell residents, be careful what you wish for. Do your homework and really look at who's running in the election. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Seems every day just about now, or at least every week, we're reading something about somebody being caught in some kind of new scam, whether it's for love or whether it's for money or whether it's for whatever. It's... it. Whether the scammers are getting better or we're getting not as wise, it seems like there's a ton of them these days. And it's often seniors, but certainly not always seniors. There are many people who are not seniors who are falling for things left, right, and center. And the the part about this that's so intriguing to me is that we are supposed to be, I thought, the most technologically savvy and astute people ever. We, there's never been a more educated generation and time on planet earth than us we should theoretically presumably be able to be aware of this kind of stuff shouldn't we and yet we continue to fall for it 
want to bring in someone to talk about this. She has literally written the book on this. Uh, Martina Dove is author of The Psychology of Fraud, Persuasion, and Scam Techniques. She joins us now. Thank you so much for the time today. Very much appreciate it. Hi, thank you. Are you ever surprised by the scams that people do fall for? Did you ever look at that and go, how in the world did you not see that coming? Well, yes and no. Um, I think a lot of the times uh, people think it wouldn't happen to them. So they are less cautious, I guess. Um, I definitely found that as a part of my research, um, the people uh, who feel that the scams wouldn't happen to them also less able to spot phishing emails. Uh, and I wonder whether it's just because they think it wouldn't happen to them. So they're less careful. Um, so no, I'm not surprised. Um, but I also think a lot of the times uh, scammers are getting much better and inserting themselves into our daily lives and mm. our daily activities. And we can't just be super vigilant uh, with everything that we do in a daily life. So I, I kind of see how scams may happen. I, I, I don't want to embarrass you. Has this ever happened to you or has it ever come close? Have you ever almost been caught by something? Uh, yeah, like I was actually scammed on eBay and um, I did get scammed. I think I purchased a phone, uh, it wasn't in the cheap or anything like that. Um, and when it didn't arrive, I, I at that point, I was trying to click on the seller and find out more about them. And I noticed that they were selling uh, phones, other phones on that same night. And I didn't check that on the night when I was, um, you know, kind of purchasing the phone. Um, and, and I remember it made me very angry. It made me very upset. Um, and, and I was kicking myself for not checking that on the night. Hmm. Um, and, and I did get my money back. So, like, I feel there was that protection from eBay. But uh, nonetheless, I was really angry and really disappointed in human nature. And, you know, like all of the feelings that a lot of uh, fraud victims have when they, they get defrauded. Um, I would say there was one time that uh, I got uh, kind of like scammed and it made me super paranoid uh, dealing with anyone on eBay. Um, so, yeah, like I think it happens to everyone, um, you know, and sometimes people don't even notice, uh, you know, if you've given money to uh, campaigns, uh, many of them are fake and people don't even realize that they've been scammed. Right. Yeah. Because all of a sudden the money's gone, you've done your good and you don't even realize what is it about yeah. us, though? There's got to be something about the human psyche or something that allows scammers to take advantage of us. Why, why is it possible to fool us? So, And, and I, when I say fool us easily, I, I do think it's oftentimes very easily, but what is it that allows us to be fooled? Yeah, um, so like I think a lot of scammers um, do use psychology when they design scams. So you'll, you'll find scams uh, that actually use many persuasion techniques that are, um, they have worked for centuries, you know, uh, such as like using urgency. Uh, so like, like maybe offering a good deal and then a very short amount of time for you to act on it. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, when kind of like you get excited about something or you get afraid about something or you get panicked, um, you kind of like go into the primal um, kind of like mode of, um, so you kind of like just almost, uh, uh, you know, your, your judgment is clouded and you kind of like just trying to figure out how to get out of the situation or how to get what you want. Um, and, uh, you know, these kind of like uh, primal uh, drives are very, very um, 
strong. Um, so scammers tend to limit the amount of time um, you have to act on certain things, either whether it's a, like a, a big prize or whether it's something like a compromised account and you, and you need to sort it out quickly, whether it's still your uh, account details. Um, they usually leave you a very small amount of time. And uh, there's a reason for that, because these kind of like primal uh, drive feelings um, are very, very fleeting. And uh, under the visceral influence or, or, or this primal drive, we're just not thinking clearly. Um, mm -hmm. So they definitely are using psychology. Uh, and a lot of the scams that I've seen uh, are usually uh, kind of evoking our primal uh, drives, whether that's, um, you know, and like primal drives can be anything like a greed, uh, uh, strong emotions, uh, sexual, uh, uh, you know, kind of like excitement. Um, so like it's used in all sorts of scams and then kind of like pairing that with some other techniques such as uh, li limiting the time, making something appear scarce uh, because when something is scarce, we want it more and we uh, go to great lengths to attain it. And, you know, like one great example of that is the shortage of toilet paper during COVID. Um, as soon as there was a shortage, people went crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. But I but, here, it, it, but it here's the part about here's the part about this yeah. that I that I don't quite understand. We are I, I don't think of North Americans and let's go with all of North America. I don't think of us as a particularly trusting people. We've been taught from our earliest days, most of us, don't talk to strangers, don't get into a stranger's car, don't take candy from a stranger. We're 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 conditioned by our parents, most of us, not to be trusting of something, and yet and then we get caught with these scams. So there's, there's gotta be something in there, whether, as you say, whether it's because it's a, an urgency or a fear or something, but there's gotta be something that makes that natural skepticism that we have go away. Yeah. Well, there was actually one study that compared, um, you know, kind of looked at whether trust, um, kind of like makes you more vigilant. Like if you're less trustful, would you be more vigilant? Um, but that's not the case. Um, some people are just like mistrustful of others, but they're not very vigilant. Um, so, uh, you know, they're just as vulnerable as trusting people. Uh, the key is to be vigilant and kind of like be almost uh, uh, more skeptical, be uh, aware. Um, and that's definitely what I found in my studies as well while I was doing my PhD, is that kind of like the level of understanding that people may have their own motives and these motives may not be honorable. Um, so just kind of like being aware of other people's motives, being aware of your own vulnerability, um, and kind of like just being vigilant uh, uh, and double-checking things definitely can protect you. And I don't necessarily think that has anything to do with trust. You can be mistrustful but careless in terms of like how you process information, and you'll still fall for scams. Well, and, and as you said off the top, I mean, some of these are so clever. I, I came so close a, a few years ago. I got one on my phone, something wrong with my bank account, and I had to send them. And I had had a long day, and I wasn't thinking clearly, and I almost hit send. send. Yeah, it's really easy. And I think people don't realize whatever you think you would do when you're kind of like in a state where you're thinking rationally and you're not under any kind of emotion. But when somebody calls you on the phone and tells you your account has been compromised, and pretends to be a fraud department of your bank, of course you're freaked out. You want to do everything to sort it out. Um, and people don't realize that it's kind of like giving advice when you're clear-headed is not the same as kind of like heeding the advice when you are under strong emotion of any kind. Um, so this is what people often think it wouldn't happen to them until it does.
Mm. We only have a second left here, but is there, do you get the sense that a lot of people feel shame when they're scammed and as a result, they double down and make it worse because they don't really want to tell anybody they've been scammed? Yeah, definitely. There's a big shame uh, attached to kind of being scammed and, you know, like big like stigma as well. I think fraud victims are seen as stupid. Uh, a lot of the times people will cast judgment on them and they're definitely uh, working in favor um, when it comes to scammers because obviously they don't get detected as quickly. Um, so I would say just report fraud and talk to whomever you can because that's one way to actually share the knowledge. It is, uh, it's a fascinating topic that, uh, you know, as I say, anyone, it can happen to anyone, even uh, those of us who um, like to think that we are discriminating. But, um, you know, uh, the book is called The Psychology of Fraud, Persuasion and Scam Techniques. The author is Dr. Martina Dove. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.